So go with me to first Samuel chapter 19. I, I, if I have time and I may not, but I'm going to, I'm going to stretch it the best I can. I may go to second Chronicles 16, but we, we hopefully will at least make it to first Samuel 19. First Samuel 19. I want to just begin to read a little bit to you to establish some of the prophetic things I believe Yahweh has sent me here to announce. Yahweh, the name we use for God, has sent me here to announce some things. So I'm just going to jump in. David establishes the rule of beloved identity in Israel. Saul was a representation of a political governmental paradigm. David was a representation of a prophetic governmental paradigm. The, the paradigms are distinguished in that one is position conscious while the other is presence conscious. It, it, it shows up in the failure of both men. When Saul fails, doesn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, but saves the best of the cattle and the best of the sheep and the best of the donkeys and even King Agag, he saves them. And he's called out by the prophet. His response to the prophet is, walk out with me in front of the people so the people will assume I'm right with God. He was position conscious. He'd rather save face than be right. <clears throat> David commits adultery, murder, possibly rape, because we do not really know whether Bathsheba had the right to reject the king. The prophet calls David over his transgression, and David, rather than asking the prophet to walk out with him in front of the people so he will look right in front of the people, says, forget the people, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renewing me a right spirit, watch this, and cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So, so the political governmental paradigm is obsessed with sustaining position. The prophetic governmental paradigm is obsessed equally with sustaining presence. Position consciousness versus presence consciousness. We'll go some more into that in just a little while. Okay, so David and Saul both deal with a measure of fatherlessness. And both are given the gift of a spiritual father. Both David and Saul are given the gift of a spiritual father in the same man who is the prophet Samuel. Both are given connection to the prophet Samuel as a spiritual father. Beloved identity permits the necessary perspective that government in the life of an authentic son is never to be there as a means of restriction, but rather as an agent of empowerment for an intended degree of liberty. Literally, David's lineage was connected to his ability to see Samuel appropriately. How you see leadership is everything. And every issue is at its root an issue of lawlessness. There's a difference between lawlessness and rebellion. Lawlessness is to be without law. Rebellion is to be against law. Lawlessness, the absence of law. Rebellion to be adverse or against law. What Yahweh does is he takes people without law and introduces them to law and that determines whether or not they have a seat of rebellion. See, I could come in here and we could just try to have revival. And if I wanted to deal with your hunger for the next degree of glory 
and I was unwilling to deal with your absence of hunger for the next degree of government, I could never get you into that glory no matter how badly you hungered for it. Because glory always follows order. And anytime God brings a new degree of government into the life of the believer, it is an announcement that he's built them for another degree of glory. So what he'll oftentimes do is, while you're crying out for wine, he will answer that cry by violating your wineskin. He'll say, that wineskin won't work. And you said, I didn't come to talk to you about the wineskin. I came to talk to you about wine. And he said, here's the issue. You will be destroyed and the wine will be wasted until we deal with the container. Oftentimes, your issue is an absence of an appropriate wineskin, and everybody wants more wine, but nobody wants to go through the process of transforming wineskins. So then, so, 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 government in the life of an authentic son is never to be a means of restriction, but an agent of empowerment for an intended degree of liberty. Whenever Yahweh sends governmental authority into our lives, it is always an announcement that we were designed for more. More government is good news. In the kingdom, more government is good news. More authority is good news. You did good on this. More discipline is good news. Because you do not get... To have God answer your cry for more your way. And if the cry for more is surface, it will despise the process that creates the intended integrity for you to be able to hold more. When when I say integrity, I, I I want to recapture a truth here, if I may. When I say integrity, immediately in our culture, we think of people who tell the truth which is true. That is an essential part of integrity. And we need more people who just tell the truth. That's just free. And I charge you nothing for that one. Just tell the truth before I hit you with something. Okay. So, so I'm I'm not that much more saved than I look. So I still can do that. So, 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 so here, here, but integrity uh, I'm in an agricultural community, so this hopefully will make some sense for you. Uh, not too long ago, uh, a season ago, I was on a, a grader. I was on a tractor with a grading element. It was a little bit higher uh, version of tractor than the tractor that I'm normally on. So it, we had hydraulics there that would give pitch to the grader so that we could get the road to grade out the way that we wanted it to. Hydraulics ran through a hose to the grader to begin to determine the angle of the pitch. The hydraulic hose busted or burst. And do you know what that was? An integrity issue. The hose didn't have the ability to tell a lie. But if it didn't have the necessary infrastructure, then it did not have the integrity to hold the intended degree of flow. That was really good. So, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm practicing because I'm going to have 10,000 people looking at me like that in a couple of days. So I'm just going to work it on y'all first. So, so, th- so, so what happens is oftentimes when you ask for more flow, 
God answers you by dealing with the integrity of the conduit by which he intends to flow through. All right. So that's interesting, right? Okay. So, so if, if we through honor have permission to inherit the, the, the correct lens, then even when government restricts for a season, it's always to produce a measure of increase we don't yet possess the infrastructure for. I call this the law of divine restriction. This law was present in the garden. Why would God put something in the garden that not only were they not allowed to touch it, but it could screw the world up if they did? Like, I've got an idea, God. I'm not God or anything, but I have an idea. Don't put that tree there. That's deep thought, right? I got an idea. Adam, he said you couldn't eat from it. He didn't say you couldn't cut it down. Cut the tree down. But this is God builds the life of the believer under the governmental law of divine restriction that says you may not. You may over here, but you may not over there. Now, why does God do that? Because if, if the hydraulic hose... uh, malfunctioning is an absence of integrity, then the law of divine restriction can be seen in the water hose. I can actually get more flow out of the water hose if I can introduce it to restriction. Your thumb. So what happens is oftentimes you feel like God is restricting your flow when an essence what he's doing is making sure you reach further than you ever would have been able to reach had you not been willing to go through a season of restriction the law so so you see the law of divine restriction right it was not the tree was not in the garden because god wanted adam and eve to die the tree was in the garden because God wanted Adam and Eve to choose his way and believe it brought a superior definition of life. He ne- he's not fascinated with you being disciplined. He's fascinated with you being fully alive. And the discipline is actually to facilitate the cry of your heart, which was, God, whatever you need to do for me to be who you designed me to be. And he said, okay, then I'm going to deal with integrity issues and I'm going to introduce you to the governmental realm of divine restriction. So, cause listen, in essence, the, the idea of sin is not just doing the wrong thing. The idea of sin is not just not doing the right thing. Both of those things are sin, but the idea goes exceedingly farther than that inside of the revelation that sin literally means to miss the mark. Okay. You can miss the target in several ways. Shoot above it, shoot under it, shoot to the left of it, shoot to the right of it, right? You'd miss the target. Most believers don't miss because of aim. Most believers miss the target because they don't have the government in their life to get them farther. All have sinned and come short. It's not you being off a degree or two that causes the sin. It's the failure to enter into the intended degree of glory that is in God's world defined as sin. Because even if you had right motives, you didn't let government come take you far enough. 
You're dealing with the most fatherless culture in the history of the world, and God is not answering the cry of an orphan society for fathers by giving them churches. He's giving them fathers. You don't need to find the right church. You need to find a culture of a family under legitimate mothers and fathers that all of their children want to be right in the middle of their world. You don't know the immense value of what you have. You don't need to be preached to. You have 17 channels that can do that for you. You get Facebook Live fantastic sermons. Right? But what you need is a culture of family where you're under the governmental rule of a spiritual father and mother that ensure that you don't fall short of your target. And you know what? I, 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 you, I know, most people don't want that. Because when that shows up, they'll go find somebody else that can preach to them. All right, a little bit further. Okay, a little bit further. In the kingdom, anything that is restricted is such because it cannot legally produce a superior degree of fulfillment. This leads naturally into a more clear distinction between a consciousness of personal destiny and a revelation. This is what I came to talk about tonight. And a revelation of what I'm calling necessary transgenerational consciousness. Most of what I believe about necessary transgenerational consciousness came to me as an initial witness traveling back and forth to this church. I saw the entire environment of what the Lord established in this valley shift over one revelation. We're going to make it about the next generation rather than us. And the moment that shift took place... Everything about the culture changed with it. And I think I'm here to prophetically remind you that you are cycling back around. Just hear me prophesy a little while. You're cycling back around to your sweet spot. You're coming right back around to the thing that established you as a group of people that there was none other like you that I knew of on the planet. Do you know this was the easy? I used to come here and say this was the easiest place in America to get somebody saved. How many of you have heard me say that? It's the easiest place in America to get somebody saved. What was all that favor about? Where'd that favor come from? You begin to move the heart of a father by becoming fathers that turns your attention toward the next generation. An egocentric, narcissistic, personal destiny consciousness got swallowed by a group of people who said, if we never see any of it. Do you know Abraham never owned an acre in the promised land? Abraham never owned an acre in the promised land, yet he considered the one who promised him the promised land faithful. Why? Because if it took four generations after his death to fill that promised land, to Abraham, his descendants living there was the same thing as him living there. Okay. 
Anything that is restricted in the kingdom is such because it can never legally produce a superior degree of fulfillment. Now, here, here's, here's a big jump. Our destiny was never intended to be limited by how it affects us personally, but rather the impact that should be being experienced by the coming generations after we have passed. Saul experiences authority that lasts the short span of a lifetime while David establishes a dynasty, the throne of which Yeshua Jesus will sit on forever. Watch this. Saul, because he's position conscious, leaves nothing of value to his sons. David, as screwed up as he was, was presence conscious. Therefore, he did not have a son rule on the throne after him. He had a son that 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 had a son. That the Bible would even say when they got ready to record the span of time that it would run from where Abraham, a father, all the way to David, a father, and his 14 generations from Abraham to David, and his 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and his 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Christ, his 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. Why is Abraham and David the only two other people mentioned in that but Jesus? Because they were both fathers. One established a legacy of faith. The other established a legacy of presence. And I think those are the two things that most mark this church. Faith and presence. They're your goalpost. Faith that says, if it's not faith, it's sin. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then when you begin to turn your attention toward the next generation, you begin to inherit this obsession with presence. And I, 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 this is just what I do. I can, I can come give you a sermon, but I, I'm here in a prophetic capacity. To tell you, I believe Yahweh is bringing you back to center. I'm not, listen, I know why am I saying you're off. But in the journey of every family, there's a cycle back to core identity. David's throne, David's name, Dahavid, means the beloved. David's legacy was beloved identity being handed from one generation to the next. Your core identity must be one furiously loved by God. That begins to generate in a family of people an uncommon obsession with presence. So we're going to go a little bit further in this, okay? Saul reigns for a lifetime, dies prematurely, and do you know who dies with him? The next generation that should have been the ones that would have been seated on the throne had dad cared more about presence than position. We don't just keep the next generation from filling the position when we're obsessed with position. We actually keep them from living. All right. So when you understand the difference between destiny and legacy or dynasty, you'll begin to live to leave something that goes far beyond yourself. 
This will change how you see Samuel. This will change how you see Samuel or spiritual authority. What Saul viewed as restrictive, David saw as permissive. How do you see government? We're in an agricultural community. I live in an agricultural community. We, the county I live in raises more peaches in that county than the entire state of Georgia combined. So don't come there right now if you have allergies. Because <laughs> there's peach blossoms happening everywhere. Peach festivals every weekend just exploding. When a tree can produce a peach is not when a tree should produce a peach. And the bud of the tree gets nipped because the tree is about to produce something it doesn't have the infrastructure to hold. A good tree receiving good source and producing good fruit can still get cut on. If a tree does not bear fruit, we cut it down and cast it into the fire. If the tree does bear fruit, we prune it, the scripture says, in order that it might bear more fruit. See, anytime God starts cutting on you, it's an announcement that he's bringing you into more. And if you don't, if you don't understand that, you see government as restrictive when it's actually permissive. This was the difference between David and Saul, one of the many differences between David and Saul. Samuel's father was a man by the name of Elkanah. And I want to show you that Samuel came into the earth under the law of divine restriction. Samuel's father was a man by the name of Elkanah. According to 1 Samuel 1, he had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Hannah and Penina. Penina conceives easily and quickly without resistance. Hannah is mocked by Penina because she has no children. Now... Pop quiz time. Penina, husband of, oh, a wife of Elkanah, has a husband under the name of, of Elkanah. Another, a sister wife. Cultural disclaimer. A sister, if I had a sister wife, she'd be floating in a river somewhere. And Tammy being an orange jumpsuit. I can just tell you that right now. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> She looked good in orange, but not that kind of orange. So, so, so here, so I want you, I, I, I want to see this. So uh, Penina conceives and reproduces quickly. Hannah is barren, but name one of Penina's children. Hannah's boy gets two books in the Old Testament named after him and becomes the second chance for a priest by the name of Eli who messed it up with the last generation named Hophni and Phinehas. Come on, let's get a little Bible time in here. So, so oftentimes what happens is we want to reproduce quickly. Therefore we produce nothing notable. Penina can reproduce whenever she wants to, but can nobody name anything Penina ever produced. Why? Because Penina may have enjoyed what she produced, but it never had any legacy beyond her lifetime. 
Samuel comes into the earth under the law of divine restriction and is used by God to anoint Israel's first two kings and ultimately to establish the lineage of beloved identity that will create a throne that David and Jesus sit on. And when Jesus sits on it, he never gets off of it. David establishes a tabernacle that by the time we get to the book of Revelations, God doesn't want to rebuild the temple of Solomon. He wants to rebuild the tabernacle of David. This is the significance of Samuel, and it's why God put Hannah under the law of divine restriction. Why is it hard? Why has there been struggle? Why did we have to wave goodbye to people? Why did it hurt? Why did we experience betrayal? What's the stab in the back stuff all about, God? See, we could take the easy road and we could reproduce quickly. And nobody would know anything about it 500 years from now. Or we can say, God, as long as it takes. If I never see it with my eyes, are you willing to plant a tree you'll never feel the shade of? Because the kingdom man does not think in terms of personal comfort. The kingdom man thinks in terms of generational legacy. And that man says, I don't care how long it takes. I am not doing this for me. This is not about Twitter followers. This is not about the size of a congregation. This is about establishing a pattern of people who have a goalpost in their life called presence and they have a goalpost in their life called faith. And a man and a woman who live with those two principal obsessions have established a lineage in this valley. And I'm here prophetically to tell you, you're about to see some reproduction come out of this place that is not going to be forgotten. Come on. You may not name Penina's children, but when Hannah has a baby... And, here, and here's what Hannah has to go through. Hannah has to go into the temple and get so obsessed with necessary transgenerational consciousness. She even has Elkina, her husband, telling her, am I not better to you than ten sons? Elkina must have thought he had some major game. Isn't it enough for you and I just to enjoy intimacy together? Not for Hannah. Not when you know you're really designed for something you hadn't even seen yet. I'm really designed to produce something that no one's ever seen before. And I could just stay and enjoy what I have before me, but I think there's something within me that I've yet to lay my hands on that when that thing comes out of me, it's going to transform generations. Think about this. Think about this. Hannah goes, I don't know how I got so stuck on Hannah. This is a small, supposed to be a small part of this, but it's, I'm having fun. So Hannah goes into the temple, steps right over the top of a man the Bible calls blind and obese. His name is Eli. She goes into the temple. She gets so filled with hope, it makes her look like she's drunk. And Eli is about to throw the woman out of the temple that is drunk enough on hope that she's about to get pregnant with his second chance. 
You blew it with Hophni and Phineas. But if you can respond to a bride drunk on hope, if you won't run out, the bride that's drunk on hope, the bride that's drunk on hope is going to become pregnant with Eli's next chance to step into necessary transgenerational consciousness. Samuel came by way of the law of divine restriction. Skip, 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 skip. Eli is about to throw Hannah out of the temple because he can't perceive or recognize that degree of hope. We need fathers that will endeavor to host a measure of presence that establishes an atmosphere for an entire generation to become drunk on hope. You show me a people that on the one hand are massively obsessed with the presence of God. And you show me a people that on the other hand are massively committed to the lifestyle of faith then in the middle, you're going to see a baby born named Hope that may fill a hopeless valley with the necessary hope to last for generation after generation after generation. Listen, if it's harder than you thought, it probably means it's bigger than you dreamed. I could put this microphone down and go home right now if I had half people knew how to shout in here. If it's harder than you thought it was going to be, maybe it's bigger than you ever dreamed it could be. And I want to say to a people that are experiencing the law of divine restriction, this thing's going to go further than you thought it was. It's going to outlive you. It's going to outlast you. It's going to outdream you. It's going to outburn you. And it's going to be the inheritance for your children's children's children. You know what that makes me want to do? Lord, as long as it takes, there's a yes in me to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In South Carolina, in our little church in the woods, we call this long path. We call this long path. Necessary transgenerational consciousness can release you from the anxiety produced by an urgency that cannot embrace the slow burn and the long path. In a hurry for what? Is anybody, we'll take Kova, for example, over here on, way too cool to be grandma. What are we, what are we called? Row, row. Your boat gently down the stream. Row, row. That's a Cherie Hand grandma name right there. Row, row. Ooh. So, so Kova, Kova over here. So, so Kova over here. Let's, let's think of this. Is, is four. How old's Kova? Five. Kova's five. Is at any point in time, Charissa and Andrew wishing my God, I wish she'd hurry up and grow up. So any genuine father embraces the stages knowing they'll have forever to be grown. Let's enjoy them in this stage of development. So, so what's the most common thing a person with older children tells a person with younger children? It goes by so fast before you turn around. And you go, quit saying that to me. And they were right. 
And now I find myself saying that to people. It's next thing you know, Elijah is 13 years old and weighs 221 pounds. Give in the offering tonight. I have to feed. <laughs> I mean, I'm not slim. So we do a little, no wonder Tammy Judah so skinny. Because we don't understand the kingdom, we fall into the trap of urgency and we feel like we need to get there by tomorrow. And Yahweh's going, you're 27. You're just now ready to get married. Let me say it like this. One of the most valuable things you and I could ever get liberated from is something called short-termism. Skip, 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 skip. All right, all right. Can I do one verse? I mean, one, not one verse, uh, two and a half chapters. No, I mean, not, not quite that much. So 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. Did I tell you that earlier? So David escaped. David's being chased by Saul, and he went to Ramah to see Samuel and he told them all that Saul had done to him. Then Samuel took David with him to live at Naoth. When the report reached Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. But when they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also began to prophesy. When Saul heard what had happened, he sent other troops, but they too prophesied. The same thing happened a third time. Finally, Saul himself went to Ramah and arrived at the great well in Sisu, where all Samuel and David, listen, where all Samuel and David, he demanded, where are Samuel and David? Get this, where's David? Back with Samuel. Saul had the same access to Samuel as did David. When Saul, the political spirit, tried to intimidate the prophetic assignment on David, do you know what David does? David goes back to the spiritual father Saul failed to appropriately honor. I'm going to say some stuff in here because I don't know when I'm going to be back. And Randy is my only living friend. I have so many dead friends you can't imagine. I talk to them and all kind of stuff. We'll get on that next time I'm in town. But I... Saul and David have the same access to a spiritual father by the name of Samuel. When the political spirit that rules the heart of Saul begins to try to extinguish the prophetic spirit that rules the heart of David... David goes back and reconnects himself to the protection inside of a spiritual father. Most of what you and I get taken out by is an isolation issue, not an issue of our adversary being so strong. We have worshipped the strength of a defeated foe and called it spiritual warfare. Salah. We have valued a teethless, keyless, defeated foe to the point that we are intimidated. And I'm telling you, most of the time, believers do not get taken out by strong demons. They get taken out by one simple 
concept, isolation. Solitary confinement is your number one enemy. And when David starts being chased by Saul, do you know what he does? He doesn't go find an army. He goes and finds a father. He gets back to Samuel's presence. And when Saul sends a group of troops to go try to capture David in Ramah, which means hill or high place, he's in Ramah, and they send a group of troops to try to go catch him. Are y'all okay? Y'all, are y'all okay? He sends a group of troops to try to go catch him. You know what happens? They fall under the influence of the governmental realm created by a father. And even the enemies of David get converted by the atmosphere created by a spiritual father. So he sends another group of troops, and you know what happens when they hit the atmosphere that is governed by the rule of a spiritual father raising up a prophetic company? They begin to prophesy. He sends a third group. The same thing happens to the third group until Saul says, I'm going to have to go take care of this myself. And Saul comes to Ramah, he'll high place in Naoth, which is under the governmental rule of a spiritual father by the name of Samuel, who has created a prophetic culture. And Saul rips his clothes off, lays naked on the ground at the feet of a man who should have been a spiritual father, and he prophesies. And had he stayed in that atmosphere, David and Jonathan could have beautifully ruled together and created a synergy that lasted for generations. The, the split between Judah and Israel manifest immediately again under the rule of Rehoboam by a man named Jeroboam. You following me? As soon as Solomon's reign is over, Israel goes right back to being divided. As soon as Solomon's reign is over, Israel goes right back to being divided. Why? Because there was going to continue to be a split in Israel as long as there was a people who did not properly respond to spiritual authority. I love to get you caught up in a swirl of a frenzy of a moment and see 750 people slain in the spirit in here and we'd hop all over and pop you with a towel and if you left and you still didn't have any spiritual authority in your life, that chill bump would last you almost to your car. But if I really loved you and I had one night with you, I would tell you, quit running for your life and go find your father's house and establish yourself and get rooted inside of a family and quit critiquing everything about them that's imperfect and start owning everything about you that's lawless. That felt good to say. I don't know how it felt to hear. It's liberating. David goes to Ramah to find Samuel. Samuel takes David to live with him in Naoth at Ramah. David, on the brink of becoming king, goes to live with a spiritual father. David, on the brink of becoming king, goes to live with a spiritual father. Watch the last part of this. Last part of this is essential. Almighty God, Abba, is currently dealing with a culture of fatherlessness 
by way of raising up authentic fathers that will lay down their lives to establish dynasties rather than continuing to function inside of an ambitions-fueled pride and entitlement. David was doing far more than ruling a nation. David was establishing a line. You're not just pastoring a church or leading worship or being a youth pastor or serving as an usher or playing an instrument in a service or changing a diaper in a nursery or teaching children's church. No, no. You are establishing a lineage. You are instigating a dynasty. That's necessary transgenerational consciousness. Why is any of this important? Let me, let me have a, in the words of Jehoshaphat, let me have a minstrel. Not the cycle, but the guy who plays. That's what I'm needing right now. Okay. So. It's California. I, I, I behave better on the East Coast. Y'all, y'all troublemakers. <clears throat> David's going to have a great, great grandson by the name of Asa. Asa's going to become king of Judah. And Asa is going to get attacked by a foreign king. And when Asa gets attacked by a foreign king, do you know the first place that the foreign king tries to establish a stronghold? Rama. Because if you can stop a group of people under the government of a father from functioning in a prophetic environment, obsessed with presence, you can stop them from accomplishing everything. But if you can't stop, listen, if you can't stop a group of people from coming under the government of spiritual authority and creating a prophetic culture, then that group of people is unstoppable. I looked up here on this stage tonight, and you know what I saw? Again, the next generation. The next generation. Look around this room tonight. Do you know what I see? I see an expression of multiple generations. Why is necessary transgenerational consciousness so significant in the life of a believer? Because you see, 28 generations after David, David was not going to have an ancestor by the name of Jesus. He was going to have a son. And when blind people needed new eyes, they would say, son of David. 1,400 years after David, David didn't have an ancestor. David had a son. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David, fourteen generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and fourteen generations from the exile to the Christ. 2,042 years between Abraham and Jesus means that an average generational span would be 50 years, which would mean there was approximately 1,400 years between David and Jesus. And in Matthew 1 verse 1, David is not just called the son of David. He's also called the son of Abraham. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom. 
So, so, so 400 years from now, if you travel to the woods of South Carolina, you're not going to find my offspring, my ancestors. You'll actually find my son. So I'm okay with it taking as long as it needs to take to make sure what we produce is not the offspring of Penina. I've got time, Anthony, to birth something nobody can ever forget. But if I get in a hurry, I'm likely to birth something nobody will ever remember. You're not. I walked in this building and Yahweh reminded me of a phrase I've taught on in the past. And he said, you, I brought you here to remember your future. See, I didn't come in here to reminisce. I came here to dream. And I don't want to remember the good old days. I want to see everything that happened in this building and in your campuses and in the culture of this church, in your different locations, in your different periods of growth. I want to see all of that as us living under the law of divine restriction where Yahweh was putting his hand on us and saying, I'm going to take you further than you even think you can go. And I'm going to make you dream beyond what's right in front of you. I'm going to make you dream beyond yourself. I'm going to make you dream beyond your three score and 10 or your 120, whatever you believe for. I'm going to cause you to dream for generations sake. You're not here to live your own life. You're not here to fulfill your own personal dream. You're here to start a movement. You're here to birth a revolution. You're here to birth a revolution of historic proportion. And I've been in this place a lot of times in my life, and I've never felt what I feel in here tonight. And the only word I know to describe it is I feel a resurgence. When God's moving in a wonderful way and powerful things are happening and he starts talking to you about resurgence, that means there's going to be a culmination of what you have seen in your greatest day and what I has never seen. See, that, that, that's, that's the deal. You can't let what you saw create the frame for what you've never seen. Or you will actually prevent what you've never seen from becoming something no one's ever seen. See, it's one thing to be called to see what you've never seen. It's an entirely different thing to be called to see something no one's ever seen. I am now seeing what I've never seen. But it would be narcissistic for me to stop at seeing what I've never seen when I'm called to see what no one's ever seen. There's a when you have when you have a church like this, 
you could penina your way real quickly into twice as many members. Because you got resources, you got skill sets, you got gifts. Really healthy, vibrant place. What, what do you do from there? Do you try to figure out how to have twice as many people? Because twice as many people may feel like twice as successful. Or do you dare to become a people of faith and a people of presence until that DNA creates a hope in the culture that literally makes you listen. More than a congregation, you actually begin to function as a family. And do you know what that would do? That would take your casual attendance and it would bury it. And what would be resurrected on the other side of the burying of your casual attendance would be ownership of a whole movement. Listen, listen, listen. Don't don't be the member of a church. Be the shareholder in a revolution. What you've been given here is more unusual than I thought it was when I got to come here all the time. The opportunity that you've been given, and if you can quit seeing spiritual authority as restrictive and you can start to see spiritual authority as permissive, then that last seed of lawlessness dies on the inside of you. And you know what can happen here? A new swirling of an outpouring of the spirit of the living God can begin to come do what only happens inside of an obsession with faith and presence. Faith and presence produces hope and revival 100% of the time. Miracles come by way of faith and presence. Restoration comes by way of faith and presence. Increase comes by way of faith and presence. I've seen people who had a high measure of faith and an inferior measure of presence and they never got the breakthrough. And I've seen people who had a high measure of presence and an inferior revelation of faith and they never got the breakthrough. But if you can find a place where faith and presence are as beautifully married married together as they are here, the offspring of that is intended to be generational. And I, 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 I know it's late and, and, and it's, you know, like a quarter to nine. And I know that and, and, and I don't want to just do something for the sake of doing it. But I feel like I need to invite people tonight, if this is okay, Randy. And, and, and that just said, I've not seen government right. And it's created an isolation. And I need to find my way back to the degree of connection with a father that creates a prophetic environment in my world. I literally believe there are people who are cut off from dreams because of how they've seen authority. And you can't attend enough conferences and you can't have enough prophetic people pray for you and you can't receive enough prophetic personal words to make up for the idea that there are some things you don't, you just don't have the integrity for that flow. And God wants to deal with our infrastructure. And I know that would be a call that would have to generate a lot of humility. I'm not saying you're a rebel. 
I'm not saying you're against authority. I'm saying tonight you've received a revelation from the Lord and something on the inside of you says, okay, God, that's what you've been whispering to me about. You're trying to bring me into more. And the only way to get me there is to cause me to understand I cannot function in isolation. Is that anybody? Is anybody feeling that when I say it? I want you guys to get ready to play. If that's you, I just feel like the first thing to do, if that's you, you say, I'm operating in isolation. I'm not, I'm not saying again, I'm not saying you're a rebel, but there's something inside of you that's saying, I've got to have more connection than I have right now. I want to release a grace for that. So if that's you, I just want you to stand all over the room. That's awesome. Just like that, just stand. When you do, just lift both hands straight up in the air. As a matter of fact, don't just do that. Come down here with me real quick. We're not in a hurry. Come on. If you're standing up right now, I want you to come from all over the room. I want you to come from all over the room. Come, 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 come. Everything I am. I want you to come. He's going to break that isolation off of you. Look at this, friend. Look at this. Look at this. That isolation is being broken in Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. I need a father. I need a mother. Come on. partner with us. Go to celebrationchurch.cc give to help us reach people with the message of Jesus. 